He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to the first Sunday in Advent. Um, I'm Nathan, in case you didn't know me. Uh, according to widespread Christian custom, uh, the first Sunday in Advent is a time when Christians reflect on and discuss not only the first coming of Christ at his birth, but also and especially uh, the second coming of Christ, the time when the hope of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God uh, would be established on earth. And as we've done this morning, Isaiah 2 is typically read on this first Sunday in Advent in this regard. And this makes sense because at its heart, this passage is a poem about hope. And this is readily apparent just by taking a quick look at the text. Uh, the prophet Isaiah projects a future without violence and without war. He speaks of nations and peoples coming together <clears throat> and speaking civilly to one another. He envisions arbitration and negotiation taking the place of armed conflict. And this dream of peoples beating their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks is an image of disarmament, shifting a nation's value production from weaponry to the basics of food cultivation. It's no wonder that this text is actually inscribed at the entrance to the United Nations building in New York City. Uh, nor is it a surprise that actually uh, two U.S. presidential inaugurations have had the Bible open at this passage during the swearing-in ceremony. And it's also perhaps not a surprise that uh, Gorbachev even quoted this verse, uh, verse 4, uh, when the Russian army withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989. Although this text is never explicitly uh, to my knowledge, cited or quoted in the New Testament, many scholars suspect that this poem uh, sort of lurks behind or inspires many expressions of hope found elsewhere in the Bible, uh, including the very last two chapters of our Bible, Revelations, uh, ch Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which envisions that point in time again when heaven and earth will converge and a new Jerusalem will emerge guiding the lives of all peoples. Apologies, I'm suffering what, from what is known as a, a man cold. So, well, that's what my wife calls it. I call it a nasty, terrible chest infection. So, <clears throat> uh, the question that I want to explore together this morning is really a series of interrelated questions. What is the function of a passage like Isaiah 2 when it envisions a better, brighter future? What is Isaiah doing? That is to say, what is hope, and what does hope do? What are we doing when we hope? And conversely, what does hope do to us? What does it do for us? Or dare I question, what does it do against us? 
To address these questions, uh, my aim this morning is, is quite simple. I just want to construct a biblical portrait of hope using Isaiah 2 as a launch pad. Uh, the goal is to capture a glimpse of the Bible's collective framework of this concept. Uh, the upshot will be to challenge us to restructure not only how we approach and participate in this Advent season, but also how we live our lives more generally. And to tip my hand slightly here at the beginning, uh, the main idea that I want to convey, the, the core argument that I want to make, is that the Bible's collective portrayal of hope promotes what I will call healthy skepticism. The Bible's collective portrayal of hope promotes healthy skepticism. If this strikes you as a rather odd or curious suggestion, or perhaps even controversial, good, I've got you right where I want you. Uh, for now. So let's begin. Hope is a feel-good word wrapped in a warm, rosy glow. We tend to presume that hope is a virtue, a good thing, and we thus value it over other characteristics such as fear and despair, cynicism and pessimism. Uh, we hold up for admiration and emulation people who seem to possess it to be like them, to mimic their behavior, uh, to embrace their vision. As many of you will recall, uh, hope was a major theme of uh, Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, but with apologies to President Obama, however, I have to admit that when con contemplating hopeful figures that we are led to admire, uh, my mind focuses squarely on the endearing hobbit in Tolkien's Middle Earth universe, Samwise Gamgee. I assume that most of you are familiar with the story of Lord of the Rings, uh, especially those among you who are British. After all, I think it's a legal requirement in this country uh, that to identify as British, you have to know all things Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Harry Potter, and Mr. Bean, my personal favorite. I'm 1% sure that that's true. But on the off chance that you are not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, it basically follows uh, the quest of two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, who are on this epic journey to destroy the ring of fire, uh, not the ring of fire, the ring of power in the fire of Mount Doom. And at the climax of the second installment, Frodo, who's exhausted and at the end of his rope with no hope in sight, he expresses to his friend Sam that he can't do this anymore. And Sam responds beautifully uh, with some of my favorite uh, words from any movie of all time. Sam says this, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. Sorry, I can't deliver this like Sean Astin can, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, it, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter, the full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even when you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand, I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. And Frodo interjects at this point, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam continues, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. 
when we encounter Sam's sentiments, it's difficult not to have uh, an emotional reaction, especially if we were to watch the cinematic version and not just listen to me read it. Um, it's nearly impossible not to evaluate Sam's hopeful posture of a brighter tomorrow as a praiseworthy disposition, one that is above reproach or suspicion. Yet, not all share this conviction that hope is a token of admiration. And I realize now I just missed out on an opportunity for a pun. I could have said token of admiration, and you guys would have been really impressed. Uh, but for some, hope is a contested notion that those who adopt alternative perspectives might instead argue that hope is vice, not virtue, poison, not remedy. From these vantage points, the warm, fuzzy, feel-good glow surrounding the term can actually open us up to the vulnerable, pernicious effects of hope. For example, some consider hope to be a rather strange object of praise if it nurtures the desire for an eventuality that may be quite unlikely to occur. In this respect, not, hope is nothing more than cruel optimism, wishful thinking, and a recipe for disappointment. Let's consider a fictitious scenario. And I realize that this is actually quite a depressing fictitious scenario, but it's the only one I could think of, so let's just roll with it, okay? Uh, imagine a man having been left by his wife for 50 years ago, still hoping fervently for her to return. A man who wishes passionately for his wife's return after 50 years may correctly believe that her return would be a good thing. Perhaps a reunion and a reconciliation would benefit them both. However, a man who hopes for such a return may fail in the meantime to nurture other human relationships that would improve his life. He may, in other words, become isolated from others and miss out on significant moments of social bonding and solidarity. In foregoing other relationships and vibrant opportunities, in anticipation of an idealized future, the man, it could be argued, did not make the best use of his limited time alive. The optimism he adhered to was cruel in that it licensed an empty fantasy and prevented him from enjoying other good possibilities that did exist in his present horizon. From this perspective, one might actually evaluate a text like Isaiah 2, uh, or texts that, like Isaiah 2, that hold up an idealized future of perfect justice and world peace as cruelly optimistic. As Nietzsche once said, hope is actually the worst of all evils because it prolongs man's torments. To envision and promote a utopian-like image of God's future begs the question of whether Isaiah 2 and other similar passages are perpetuating a pipe dream and thereby prolonging our suffering, distracting us from other, perhaps more realistic, vibrant possibilities to explore and enjoy now. Relatedly, others may argue that hope makes us vulnerable to pernicious effects because it's actually tantamount to surrender. To live in hope for some is simply resignation in the present to the fate of the future. Resignation in the present to the fate of the future. To envision and cling to a future in which God will take definitive action and uh, to turn the world right side up 
perhaps possesses the danger of minimizing the importance of human agents taking effective action to combat injustice in the present. Rather than getting up and doing something to help our neighbor, hope can license us to sit back and simply hope and pray for the best. I'm, I'm reminded of the public debates in 2018 in the aftermath of the multiple school shootings in the US. Um, some pockets of Christianity came under uh, severe scrutiny because their hopeful response of, quote, thoughts and prayers uh, resembled for others an excuse uh, to ignore tumultuous present social conditions. In this sense, hope was the enemy of change. It offered rhetoric and, inspire, and inspiring words, but it was incapable of the arduous, difficult detail involved in actually getting things done. Or we might say, hope prevented hope from being realized. It enabled the world's ruin. Again, from this viewpoint, one may evaluate a text like Isaiah 2 as actually encouraging resignation in the present to the fate of the future. After all, if God wins tomorrow, why be concerned with today? That sort of mentality. I, for one, however, am not convinced that these alternative articulations adequately capture the nature of Christian hope, at least how it is constructed in the Bible. But these alternative takes, I think, do aid us in nuancing how idealistic-like visions of the, fu of the future function in this or that passage. And let me make two main points in this regard. First, when the prophet Isaiah in chapter 2 envisions a future where the city of Jerusalem will function as the centerpiece of God's new world order and Jews and Gentiles will coexist in peace and harmony, he is implicitly affirming that his present horizon does not live up to those future standards. Otherwise, his vision would not be a future vision at all, but a mere description of his current time and place. Indeed, when Isaiah actually utters this oracle, the Jewish people are facing the circumstances of their city Jerusalem sieged, their holy temple destroyed, and their land plundered by invading Gentile forces. To hold out a portrait of light in such circumstances is to make a distinction between what is present and what is hoped for. In this respect, Isaiah's vision is what we might call a manifestation of difference between the present and the future. As a consequence, hope, by manifesting this difference, provides the means for one to actually evaluate the present, to assess it, to perhaps criticize it, pass judgment on it, express dissatisfaction with it in light of the values and ideals of the yearned for future. This juxtaposition of the present and the future in instances of hoping leads to the second main point. Biblical hope, by differentiating between what is present and the future, actually encourages us to bring the future into closer proximity to the present. And this may sound rather obtuse and abstract, but, but here's what I'm getting at. Hope, if I understand it correctly, beckons us to live out in the present the values characteristic of the future new creation. But otherwise, by differentiating between the present and the future, 
hope actually problematizes the difference. It urges its, ad its adherents to actively throw themselves into actively what is becoming. It bridges the present and the future by placing us under ethical responsibility. Now consider these examples from the Bible to, to illustrate what I mean. Consider Mark 1.15, where Jesus uh, began his ministry with the following announcement. He said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Here, Jesus's anticipation of the coming kingdom is indelibly intertwined with his message that his people needed to repent. Eschatology, his, his, view, his vision of the future, in other words, determined his ethics, determined his conduct. In 1 John, which we just had a few weeks that we discussed uh, that letter on, uh, in 1 John, the ideal set before Christians is that they should be perfected in love and thereby have confidence in the day of the Lord. Take 1 Thessalonians 5 as another example. In this text, Paul bases his ethical imperatives on both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of the day of the Lord. Let me just read a few uh, uh, parts from this passage. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Eschatology and ethics. In many New Testament letters, Christ's life and death are regarded as the means by which God inaugurates the age to come, thereby bridging the present and the future. Consider Romans 6, where Paul writes, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in, to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, and so on. As a final example, we actually don't need to look any further than Isaiah 2. After projecting this utopian-like future in verses 1 to 4, notice that the prophet Isaiah shifts in verse 5 to offer an ethical imperative. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In, in Hebrew, it's, it's an imperative coupled with an imperfect tense verb, for those of you who are interested in Hebrew grammar. I'm not guessing many of you. In Greek, it's an imperative uh, with a hortatory subjunctive, for those of you that are interested in Greek grammar. Maybe one person is interested in that, and he's up here on the stage. In light of these passages, therefore, I think it's safe to suggest that Christian hope is worthy of our admiration and embrace. It's not cruel optimism or wishful thinking. The hope that the full measure of God's kingdom will come in the second coming is based on the fact that Jesus has already come once, 
providing a foretaste of what is to come in full. Hence, according to the Apostle Paul, God has put his seal upon us and given us, and given us his spirit as a guarantee. The spirit is a pledge of the future. Neither does hope distract us from vibrant opportunities right now. It's not a license to, uh, to surrender living justly and walking humbly. Rather, hope beckons us to be now what we are becoming. It is, as I suggested earlier, healthy skepticism. Skeptical because it manifests difference. It questions the notion that the present is all there ever will be, reminding us that nothing about the present world order is inevitable. Healthy because it beckons transformation in the present, not resignation and isolation. More, of course, could be said about this concept of hope. Uh, we could talk about how it promotes solidarity with others, that it helps us to develop other virtues like endurance and steadfastness, but I'm just gonna uh, leave it there for today. Uh, so in conclusion, uh, I just want to offer a brief reflection of today's talk uh, with specific reference to how we approach the Advent season this year. Here it is. To embrace the Christian faith, uh, to identify and live as part of a Christian community is to enter into God's story, to dream God's dreams and hope God's hopes. And often during this time of year, with all the noise and the festivities and the beautiful stories of hope, and they are beautiful, and the inevitable nostalgia that accompanies all of this, it's all too easy to embrace a version of Christian faith that is merely wishful thinking, cruelly optimistic, or simply an exercise in escapism. In light of our analysis, uh, can I challenge us to rather cultivate and enjoy a more robust, uh, broad-shouldered version of Christian faith, one that beckons us to live out in our present horizons that warm, fuzzy virtue of hope. So let's pray. In recognition that uh, praying is actually to perform an exercise of hope, of healthy skepticism, as I've described it, I want to recite uh, the Lord's Prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. <laughs>